Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Well, thanks, Wes. Uh, wow, you just keep picking on old Fritz Troxel. Huh? Is Fritz here, by the way? Do you see Fritz anywhere? Uh, if Fritz, if you're watching at home, uh, just I'm getting Wes back a little later in the message, so I got your back for you, man. But great to see you guys here. Good morning. Great to see everybody together. What a fantastic morning. I know that several of you are here because maybe for the first time here at North because you're supporting a friend or a family member who was being baptized uh, this morning. We want to say just thank you on behalf of them. Thank you on behalf of us. Thank you for being here this morning. You know, this is something that each one of those seven people are going to remember for the rest of their lives. And one of the things that they're going to remember, yeah, exactly. One of the things that they're going to remember, though, is that you were here with them to celebrate that. And so we are so thankful that you are here, so thankful that you are celebrating here with us this morning. And because I appreciate you being here so much, I want to give you a little bit of an introduction to what we are going to be covering this morning. I hope whoever invited you this morning prepared you for this, uh, but we are in the middle of a series on the book of Revelation in the Bible, and I don't know if you are familiar with the book of Revelation, but if you are, or maybe if you aren't, you may know that, there is, that, that in the book of Revelation are some of the most difficult uh, passages to understand in the Bible, and in some ways are some of the most difficult messages to stomach in a lot of ways. And as providence would have it, and I do believe it's providential this morning, we're going to see one of those passages here this morning. You guys excited for that? Uh, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 16. You're going to see what I mean here in a few minutes when we read through it. But before we get into it, what I want to do is I want to do something, uh, a little exercise here this morning. I want to do a word association exercise. You know what a word association exercise is? Have you all done this before? Word association is basically when one person says a word and then another person responds with a word just without thinking about it, the first word that comes to mind and just kind of speaks it out, okay? So in this case, I'm going to be the first person. I'm going to say a few words, a series of words here. And after I say the word, I want you just to respond with the first word that comes, that comes to mind, right? I want you to say it out loud, okay? We're all going to do this together. You all ready? Okay? Let's do this. Word association exercise. Here we go. Night. Okay. Work. Okay. Good. Food. Oh, we got a little difference of opinion on that one. Car. Dog. Awesome. So you guys were on the, on the same page with most of these, right? But of course, word association, the purpose of a word association exercise is to see how we make connections between ideas and words and phrases and how they just kind of, how they just kind of automatically make connections in our minds, right? And we're not going to go through the psychology of all that other than just to say that, you know, basically what I had you do this morning is preparing us for what we're going to be doing here in Revelation chapter 16. We're going to be doing kind of a word association of sorts as we get through, as we talk about the message that is presented to us here in this passage. And in a lot of ways, we're doing like a biblical image imagery association, if you will, because we're going to see a lot of images. We're going to see a lot of words that are designed to be associated with other places in Scripture. And if you're not familiar with this, if you're not familiar with the Bible, that's okay. I'm going to walk you through it. That's what I'm here for, to help us through that. So there's a lot that we're going to look at here in just a minute, but I'm going to warn you ahead of time. We're going to be reading some of the most difficult descriptions that we have maybe in all of the Bible. 
And so as, but, I, but I will tell you this, it's leading to a good thing. I really feel that this is providential, that God has brought us to this place at this time to go over this scripture this morning because I believe it's going to take us to a really good place in the end, okay? So enough with all the disclaimers this morning. Let's begin reading. In Revelation chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to read all the way through the chapter together. All right, so follow along with me. If you have a Bible app on your phone or if you have your Bible with you, the scripture will also be up on the monitor so you can follow along that way as well. Revelation chapter 16, verse 1 says this. And this is John seeing uh, his vision in Revelation. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl onto the sea, into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Now the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and, and who was, for you, uh, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your, ju- are your judgments. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. And they were scorched by fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. The the sixth angel uh, poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way of the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at a place in Hebrew that is called Armageddon. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup Uh, the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. All right, told you so. All right, so a lot to deal with here. The first thing, though, that we want to deal with is the interpretive elephant in the room. The question is, Is what John's seeing here describing real events that will happen or that have happened on the earth? And I think the answer to that is both yes and no. And what I think we need to remember when we're dealing with in Revelation is that what John is describing is he is writing down what he sees in a vision. Okay, so he sees a vision and he is writing down everything that he sees in this vision. 
And these visions that are given uh, to John by God are primarily designed to communicate a message. And that's the purpose of this imagery, of apocalyptic imagery. It's meant to communicate ultimately a message. And we're supposed to get what is, and the idea is that the priority of this is what, what is that message and what exactly is God saying to us? It's a, it's a lot like Jesus' parables, for example, in this way. Right, when Jesus told a parable of the Good Samaritan, right, they didn't ask him, well, did a Good Samaritan really exist and did he really come up to a man who was on the side of the road? The point wasn't necessarily whether or not the story actually happened. In likelihood, it probably did not. The point was the story and the symbolism that ultimately aided to the message. And I think in a lot of ways, this is exactly what we're looking at when we read through the book of Revelation, is that what God is giving John is a vision, and John is then writing down what he sees in a vision. In other words, when it comes down to what, God, or what John is ultimately describing, then it's not necessarily that he's looking at like real events that will happen or that have happened on the earth and writing them down. He is writing down what he sees in a vision, and those images represent, in this case, the judgment of God. So when he describes the sea filled with blood and every sea creature dying in the midst of the sea, when he talks about the sun scorching human beings with flames of fire and 100-pound hailstones falling on them, Right? Does that mean all of those things are going to happen? Literally the way they're described here. I will say this. I'm not going to say it's not going to happen because God can do anything he wants in the end. I'm not going to say it won't happen. But I will say the best way to interpret this is to understand that what John is doing is he is explaining to us a vision of God's judgment in the way that God communicates or the way that God shows him through the vision. And so when he talks about, for example, and there's a lot of figurative language going on here. So for example, just talking about the seven bowls that are being poured out here. That doesn't mean literally that there will be these large bowls that are poured out onto the earth. That's obviously figurative language. If you go back to a place like Revelation chapter 13, where John sees the vision of a beast with seven heads coming out of the sea, it's not meant to say that at some point in the future we're going to see a beast that rises out of the Mediterranean with seven heads and marches out onto the shoreline, right? Apocalyptic literature, these symbols are designed to tell a story and they communicate a message and it's God's message to us that we should ultimately be concerned about. So the question then becomes, what exactly is the message? What is God trying to communicate to us through this? Well, this is why we prepped ourselves on word associations earlier because this is where the biblical associations will start for us. And one of the first associations we need to make is the connection between uh, a set of judgments that we saw earlier in the book of Revelation, the seven trumpet judgments back in chapters 8 and 9, and the bowl judgments. And if you lay those together, it's been a few weeks since we went through those, but if you lay them together, what you'll see is a lot of common language and, and similarities between these two judgments. In fact, I think there's so much commonality there that it's meant to describe really not two sets of judgments, but really a set of judgment activity from two different perspectives or with two different goals in mind. I think specifically what this means is that the trumpet judgments are more generally stated, and then when we get to the bowl judgments later, like what we have here in chapter 16, these are more specifically descriptive of pointing us in a certain direction. Um, and so here's an explanation of how those judgments relate. Uh, G.K. Beale, who is a biblical scholar, explains it this way. He says, There is not a one-to-one -one correspondence between each corresponding trumpet and bowl, but they are similar enough to be considered parts of the same overall program of divine judgments occurring during the same general period. Generally speaking, the first six trumpets and the first five bowls cover the time between Christ's resurrection and his final parousia, 
while the, tr- the last trumpet and the last two bro- bowls narrate the final judgment. So es- essentially what he's saying is that these two are similar enough that they work together in explaining kind of a fuller picture of God's judgment. And Bill continues and he says this, the bowls explain in greater detail the woes throughout the age. The age referring to basically the time when Jesus rose from the dead until the time when Jesus comes again. The age that we're in now, in other words. Culminating in final judgment. This recapitulation thus explains further the extent and application of God's latter-day exodus judgments, which John began to explain with the trumpets. Okay, so we got the trumpets and the bowls. We see how they correspond and how they're presenting to us this activity of judgment that leads up to final judgment. With that understanding and knowing that these are taking place within a vision, what do they mean and how do they apply? What do they have to say to us today? Well, I think there's one more thing we have to hit on before we answer that question. At the end of that quote that we just read, you saw Bill refer to what he called the Exodus judgments. I think this is really key here. You may remember that during the trumpet judgments we talked about the backgrounds and the connections to the Exodus plagues that happened all the way back in the Old Testament right during the time of the Exodus when God released the Israelites uh, from, uh, uh, from Egypt. Okay? Now, you may remember that same imagery, and you may notice that that same imagery is kind of picked up in these bowls again. We see it play out over and over again through these descriptive uh, descriptions of John's vision here. And so the question is, why is it that God joins that Exodus imagery to what is happening all the way over here in the book of Revelation? And I think that's the key to understanding the message behind this, by the way. And, and so if you're not familiar with the Exodus, I'll walk you through it just quickly. Here we go. First, the Exodus was about how God delivered his people in the Old Testament, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt. And you may remember this. If you, if you were in Sunday school, or you, uh, uh, you may remember this story from other places, other times you've been in church. But uh, there was a, as the Israelites were in slavery in ancient Egypt, God sends Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my, let, let my people go. Right, And Pharaoh hears Moses say this, and he basically laughs at him. Pharaoh's the most, most powerful man on the planet, ruling over the most powerful empire, and he's not about to let a, a slave workforce of two million people just walk right out the gates of Egypt. And so what God does as a result is he sends plague after plague on Egypt in order to break down Pharaoh so that he will eventually relent and allow uh, the Israelites to go. And as he displays, as God displays each one, or sends each one of these plagues, what he's doing is he's displaying who he is as God of the Israelites. In other words, that he is the one true God over all the other gods that the Egyptians worship. And what we see here is that, what we we see here in, in chapter 16 of Revelation is that the commonalities of those plagues are actually picked up, and that imagery is brought into the symbolism of the bulls here. I'm going to give you, uh, and I want to give you kind of a, I brought with me this little uh, uh, graphic that shows each one of the ten plagues of Egypt. Okay, I don't know if you can read that. I'm going to read through them, though. And as I read through them, I want you to think to yourself, where do we see those in Revelation 16 from what we just read, right? Notice the commonality. Notice the connection here. Uh, Plague one is water being turned to blood. Plague two is the frogs covering the ground in Egypt. Plague three is gnats and lice. Plague four is flies. Plague five was a disease on livestock. Plague six was boils breaking out on people. Plague seven was hail excuse me, and fire falling from the sky. 
Plague eight was locusts. Plague nine was darkness covering the skies. And plague 10 was death of the firstborn. Of the firstborn. Now, here is biblical image association really at its finest. Notice that each of the seven bowls in Revelation 16 refers to at least one of the plagues of the ten plagues of Egypt. And when you join this reference, of course, to this reference that shows up in this imagery that shows up over and over again in the book of Revelation of Jesus as the Lamb, right? you get this picture of the Exodus coming back over and over again in the book of Revelation. Jesus as the Lamb who was slain. Of course, it was during the Exodus which God told the Israelites to put the blood of the Lamb over their doorposts so that they could so that they could be covered from judgment, that God would deliver them through the judgment that was coming on, on Egypt. When we look at Revelation 15, which is what we looked at last week, God's people in heaven are said to be singing the song of Moses, and there's a, represent, a reference to the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, which of course was the place that God met with the Israelites in the desert after the Exodus. And I think what you, what you get in the end here is that there is Exodus imagery everywhere in the book of Revelation, especially in these two chapters. And it's against that background that we're meant to understand where these judgments and what these bold judgments represent. Now I think as you look at it, it's pointing us almost to kind of this new Exodus type event in the book of Revelation. That God is telling us, just, what, just like what I did back then in the Old Testament, I am doing again. And here's why this makes a difference. We're going to get to that here in a minute. So either all of this Exodus imagery is either just an amazing coincidence, or God is really trying to tell us something about how we should connect these two ideas. And I think the latter is true. And so we're going to talk about a few of the things that we see as far as the connections between both the plagues, why God sent the plagues, and why these bold judgments are here and what they tell us about who God is and what he's doing. First of all, both of them tell us that God and present to us the fact that God is truly God. You know, one of the purposes of the Exodus plagues back in the Old Testament was to remind the Israelites and also to show the Egyptians at the same time that God was the one true God, that he was the most powerful God, that he was the one true God over all of creation. Pharaoh actually believed himself to be a god. The pharaohs of ancient Egypt, they called themselves the sons of God. They believed themselves to be a manifestation of the sun god Ra, which was the most powerful god uh, in, in, in ancient Egypt. And not only that, but the Egyptians had a pantheon of all these different kinds of gods, where they basically assigned a god to every part of nature, every place of life. So there was a god of the Nile River, for example, there was a God of the sea, there was a God of the sky, a God of the weather, a God of human health, a God of livestock. And if you work through those 10 plagues, what you see is that God is basically confronting each one of those so-called gods on their turf and confronting them and showing them, whether it's the livestock, human health, the water, the river, the gnats, the, the, the fertility, whatever it may be, the farming, the agriculture, all of those places had gods that they were assigned to. And God was showing that he was the one true God over all of the gods of Egypt. Over all the idolatry that was present in ancient Egypt, God is presenting himself as the one true God, both to Israel and to the Egyptians as well. And the imagery, again, is similar in the bowl judgments. What you see is that the sea, the earth, the sun, the throne of the beast, all of those things are, uh, the very health of people are judged by God in this case. Right, all the things that typically produce idolatry. We've, we've gone through these uh, previous chapters where we've seen the beast coming from the sea and the beast that have come from the earth. 
And what we've been told is that the beast who comes from the sea uses blasphemy to oppose God, and the beast who comes from the earth uses deception to oppose God and God's rule. It's no coincidence, I don't think, that the bold judgments fall first on the sea and then on the earth. They're confronting the idolatry and the force of the beast behind those things. And the connection is the same, that God is judging idolatry in all of its forms, many times coming in the form of the beasts of the sea and the earth, which of course, as we've said earlier, impact all kinds of things in the world around us. That could be political systems, it could be economic systems, it could be even in some cases religious systems. The powers that be, the things that run, the, th- the, things, that, uh, the things that are kind of the, the power brokers in culture and in our world. So God is truly God. He's opposing the idolatry in all of its forms in the world. Secondly, God is sovereign. You know, the whole vision of Revelation in many ways is about how God is controlling history. As we talked about earlier, this is a picture, Revelation gives us a picture of pulling behind the curtain and seeing what God is up to while human history is progressing forward. Even the image of the bowls coming from heaven and pouring out onto the earth is a picture of God's sovereign rule over all things. That what God is doing on heaven is pouring out into the earth and God is bringing his plan to bear uh, through all of it. And in all of this, right, even though it may not look like it, even though we may not look, we may not always see God's activity, we may not always see that God is sovereign, in the end, no matter what is happening, nothing can oppose God's plans and purposes to bring it to the end. Because God is completely sovereign over all of it. And we see that repeatedly throughout the book of Revelation. We see it again through the bold judgments here. That God is binding and judging the idolatry of the world, but he is also binding and judging the beasts who seem to be the ones who are in control, the dragon who seems to be the one who is in control. He is actually, he is actually the one who is bringing his purposes to bear over their opposition and in face of their opposition. Third, God's activity to deliver his people is something we see both in the plagues and the bulls. You know, in the new Exodus, God's activity for his people is similar to what he did in the original Exodus. He delivers them from slavery, from an, e- from an, evil, uh, from an evil kingdom, and delivers them from judgment by the blood of the Lamb. And there might, I don't think there's a better way to understand a context of the bold judgments than by framing them against this background which I think this is why God gives us so many obvious connections here because he's saying, he wants us to know that just like what I did back in the Exodus is how you make sense of what I am doing now. In the first century, right, the first century church who receives this letter originally, the book of Revelation, the church is under a foreign dictator, oppressed in a foreign land, under an evil kingdom in the Roman Empire that is full of all kinds of idolatry. The parallels with Egypt are very, very similar in a lot of ways. But God's promise is still the same, whether it's Pharaoh or Caesar, except that he's not only giving his people uh, uh, of the New Testament, the people of the Lamb, a promise to be delivered from human kingdoms and human kings, but a promise to be delivered from the kingdom of sin and evil and the dragon forever. And it's not only that he delivers us, it's not only what he delivers us from, but what he delivers us to. Not just to a section of land on the other side of the Jordan River, but that he delivers us to a new creation. He delivers us to a place that he has prepared for us for eternity. And not in a place where God will dwell in temples and tabernacles, but where God's glory will dwell with us forever as the person of Jesus in the new creation. 
right? And so you see that this new exodus is the fulfillment of the, of, the, of, of the shadow of the previous exodus. And finally, God's desire is to bring his people to himself to be with them. In Exodus 19, after the Israelites have been delivered from Egypt, there's this amazing scene where God brings the Israelites to the base of Mount Sinai, and through Moses, he tells them, tell these people that these are my people and that I have brought them to me on eagle's wings. I have delivered them and I have brought them to myself. There's this wonderful promise and this wonderful idea that God's goal all along was to reconcile his people to himself, to bring them to a place where they could dwell together and where he could be their king and their God, where he could free them in a way that they did not experience in Egypt when they were in slavery. And this, once and for all, again, is a picture of the dwelling place that God goes ahead to prepare for us, the new creation reality, the new heaven and the new earth. And so as we've covered earlier in this series, you know, one of the things about the book of Revelation is when we see these visions over and over again, pulling back the curtain and seeing behind the scenes of human history, what it's designed to show us is not just that God promises things will happen in the future, but that God is working and that God has been working even to this point. That he is active behind the scenes and that he's bringing his plans and purposes to bear for his people. And while his people might be suffering, while they might be experiencing persecution, while his creation appears to be crumbling under sin and evil in every place that we look, in the end, he's not just sitting back and doing nothing. He is moving even now and he's bringing it to an end. He's bringing it to a place according to his sovereign rule for his glory and for our good. And again, in the speculation of whether or not giant hailstones are going to fall on people or where the battle of Armageddon is going to be held, I think sometimes we get lost in the focus of all of this. The point is that God is giving us his word to remind us what he is doing and where he is taking everything to give us hope that sin and death and evil will be defeated and that justice and righteousness and eternal life will reign for eternity. That God loves his people and that God is going to act on their behalf and that he will win the battle on their behalf. By the way, I believe that's the, of course, the battle of Armageddon is referenced here. I believe that is the, the, the point of the battle of Armageddon. It represents the opposition of the kings and the kingdoms of this earth backed by the beasts who represent everything that's opposed to God's king and God's kingdom. And the final judgment will bring the final battle of Armageddon to show the world that the lamb has defeated the dragon once and for all. And I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. I don't know if that's going to be out on some plane somewhere. I don't think it's going to be on some plane somewhere with a bunch of soldiers fighting each other, like heavenly soldiers. I think we have the vision of what happened in heaven where the dragon is defeated and thrown to the earth. We know that a lot of the things in heaven are correspondingly acted on the earth in the visions of, of Revelation. I think that's a picture of the defeat of the battle that happens with uh, the dragon in heaven. But what I believe will, will happen, at least at that point, is that there will be a visible representation to the entire creation that the lamb has defeated the dragon once and for all. I don't know exactly what that'll look like, but I believe that's exactly what the battle of Armageddon refers to here. So with all of this together, look, the message of this vision is pretty clear at this point. What is left here for us is for those of us who read this to choose whether or not we're going to actually believe it. Right? As there has been throughout the book and as there is right here, there is a contrast between the lamb who is Jesus and the dragon who is Satan all the way through this book. They, have, they each have their own kingdoms and what this book tells us is that, is that every person is either part of one kingdom 
or the other. If we look around us, sometimes it looks like the dragon's kingdom is winning. There is evidence of that everywhere. We can point to all kinds of things that are broken in our world. All kinds of things that are scary, all kinds of things that are evil. But despite what it often looks like, if we're able to see behind the curtain from God's perspective, what we realize is that Jesus and his kingdom not only will win in the end, but is already won. And those who are saved by the Lamb, who have placed their faith in the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain for our salvation, will live with him and reign with him forever in his kingdom. For those who reject the Lamb's invitation to come to him by faith, to confess sin and to repent, and to receive his salvation, they are left on the earth. And when you read chapters 15 and 16, what you see here is really, chapter 15 is what we looked at last week. If you're with us, Pastor West took us through chapter 15. And these are designed to actually be read side by side, so if you have a chance, read them side by side at some point. But what's presented to us here is a stark contrast between what we see in heaven, chapter 15, the people who are marked and sealed by the Lamb are celebrating the victory of Jesus in heaven, and they're worshiping there in the throne room. And then chapter 16, what we see is the other result of final judgment, is that those who have rejected the invitation of the Lamb are left on earth to face the judgment of the dragon and the beast. And we might say at this point, as people often do, it's not fair for God to judge good people like this. I mean, where's the justice in sending a good person to eternal judgment like what we see in places like this in Revelation? Because what is clear is although it may not be 100-pound hailstones that fall on people at the end, the point is, is that the judgment that comes when it comes and when it is final is going to be horrible. It's going to be awful. It's something that none of us want to experience. That's the message we get. That's a picture we get from here. In some ways, 100-pound hailstones in the end might actually be the merciful way to go. That's how horrible these scenes are in a lot of ways. And that's how real the judgment of God is. The questions about whether human beings deserve to be judged in such a way is a question that's important to answer, though. I think in a lot of ways, it comes back to some sort of minimizing sin and evil. I think in two different ways. We sometimes think that sin and evil is not really that bad, or if it's bad, that other people, or really a select few evil people, should be judged. Not us. Not regular people. Not people who are mostly good at heart. Well, I'm going to take each of those objections one at a time for us as we, as we continue this morning. First, sin and, first, the objection that sin and evil really aren't that bad. Now, I'm guessing that this is probably not the biggest reason why people reject God's judgment. Because there's enough, again, there's enough evidence every day for us to see that sin and evil is bad. But the question is, how bad is it really? Again, there are countless examples that we could point to regarding things like epidemics of human trafficking, murder, rape, poverty, pandemics, injustices. All evil things that are manifested in a way that wreck people's lives, that wreck families and wreck communities forever. And when it comes to this objection, I think it takes more of the form of objecting to the depth of God's judgment activity. That all, why is it that all of creation has to be judged so comprehensively? Well, this comes, I think, from the idea that, and I think it's a false idea, that we believe that as evil as this world may be, it can still be fixed. If we just find the right formula as human beings, if we could just find the right leader to lead us in the right way, if we could just create a utopia or the right ideology or the right technology or have the right medicine in place, then we can create a world where we can all live forever in bliss. We can create a world where we can fix all that's broken. 
I think what this ignores is the idea that as human beings, um, we, shouldn't, we aren't able to fix the effects of the things that we have caused. As broken people, as people who have brought sin into the world and broken God's good creation, it is impossible for us to fix what is broken while we contribute to it. And this, I think, comes from the idea that we aren't really that dependent upon God to fix it all. But the truth is that we are. I've said how much I, previously how much I like to study World War II history. Um, I got into it because I realized World War II is kind of one of, the, maybe the most pivotal event in modern human history. But as you get into it, if you've studied anything about World War II, if you know about it, one of the things that you begin to realize is that World War, there's no, probably no better example, especially in modern history, of the greatest demonstrations of evil that the world has ever seen than World War II and the events that surround it. There's too much to go into, too much evil surrounding it to go into all of it this morning, but I want to just give you an idea by talking about the numbers of lives that were lost during that period of time. You know that in Nazi Germany under Hitler, about 11 million people were killed. In Russia under the same time, Joseph Stalin killed another 8 million people. The war itself, along with famines and disease associated with war, killed another 85 million people. And so we're talking about just from those three figures, over 100 million people over an eight-year span died as a result of the war and the surrounding um, issues there. Now, I want you to think about what 100 million of anything looks like. Much less 100 million people. I mean, close your eyes for a second and try to think about 100 million people and what that looks like. It's unimaginable. We can't even imagine what 100 million people looks like, and yet every single person, a person created in God's image, a person who has a family and was loved by people on this earth, were lost. We can't even get our minds around that, and that's one war over the span of eight years. I'm going to mention something like 20 years later, with Mao's so-called Great Leap Forward, which killed 45 million Chinese people in a four-year period from 58 to 62, and the list goes on and on and on in human history. The bottom line is that evil and sin is so pervasive and so destructive that the only one who can do anything about it is God himself. So for us to claim that it's fixable without God is either ignorant or foolish, blind hubris. So let's deal with the other objection. We've got universal evil and sin. The other objection that we often have when it comes to the judgment of our sin is our personal sin. Is my personal sin really that bad? We might recognize that sin and evil are bad with guys like Hitler and Stalin and Mao, but those are exceptions, right? Surely, surely, for the most part, everyday people are not really bad, are they? Well, the Bible disagrees. Re- Romans chapter 3 says this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their, their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now this, this is humbling <laughs> to read this, to see that it says everyone is like this. But none of us, the point is, is that as the Bible makes clear in this place and many other places in Scripture, that none of us is off the hook when it comes to sin and evil. We are all guilty of it as sin before God and as sin that breaks the creation and the world that God created. The problem 
is that those who are broken it cannot be trusted to save it. This goes for our lives. We can't save our own lives by our own sin. That solution doesn't work. The reality is that we are not wise enough or good enough to save our lives or to save the world around us. We need a Savior who is better and more powerful than us. And the Bible tells us that Savior is Jesus. Now look, here's the thing. I think all human beings know and sense that there are broken things in the world and there are broken things in us. That's been true from the beginning of humanity. We realize that. We see it around us. We feel it inside of us. We see it in our relationships. What we disagree on as human beings from religion to religion or worldview to worldview is what caused it and what, if anything, can be done about it. The Bible presents a clear and compelling and I believe what is the true answer to both of these things. We are broken. The world is broken because we did it to ourselves. So in order to fix what we broke, we cannot do it. We need someone else to do it. And we need a complete overhaul. We don't just need more of the same. We don't just need a better version of ourselves or a better version of the world we created. We need a complete overall, something completely new. So the Bible tells us that God saw our situation and out of his love he came to us. Not just sending a messenger, not just sending an angel to fix things, but he came himself to make us new and to give us life the only way that it could be done by sacrificing his life for us so that we could leave the old broken things behind and we could take up what is new. And he says to us to come and receive this invitation to trust in what he has done, to recognize that we need it because we can't fix it, and to trust in God's provision to bring us back to himself. In order for what is new to come, the old broken things have to be removed, down to the islands and the mountains, as this says in Revelation chapter 16 at the end. Complete, complete, and utter destroying of what is old in order to bring in the new. And we need Jesus to make us new people, and nothing less than that will save us from the judgment on the old broken things. A broken thing cannot fix a broken thing. A dead thing cannot give life. Only a living thing can do that. Listen to what Jesus says in Revelation 21, verses 5 through 7. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of of the water of life without payment. These are Jesus' words to us. As he sits on the eternal throne in heaven, the one who is the beginning and the end, he says, I am making all things new. And notice right there that he says he will give us the water of life, the water of eternal life to anyone who knows that they are thirsty and they need it. And that gift is given to us free, not because it was free, but because he paid for it on our behalf out of his love for us. The baptisms we saw earlier perfectly represent the need that each of us have. It's a need for each of us to be made new. You notice that each person went all the way into the water and came back up. What that represents is that they become a completely new person in Jesus. A new person with a new identity, a new purpose, a new destiny, a new life, a new righteousness because they have joined their lives with Jesus. One of the things that baptism shows us convincingly is that Jesus didn't come to make you just a better version of yourself. He came to make you a completely new person. He came to give you his life Because no matter what you do, your life will not last. No matter how much you dress it up, no matter how much supplements and pieces of kale we shove into our mouths, 
We all know that our bodies fail and die and age and die. I mean, believe it or not, my hair used to be a beautiful dark brown, almost black. Like it looked black and it could walk out in the sun and there'd be highlights of brown in it. I mean, it was wonderful. And now look at it, right? Got highlights of gray. That's, that's really all I've got. And believe it or not, Wes used to have hair. He used to have enough hair that he would put bleach in it so that he could look like a boy band member from the 90s, right? And now look at him. Actually, he looks better now than he did back then, to be honest. But that's age, and none of us can do anything about it. But it's a constant reminder that I don't need just a better version of myself. We need a new life. We need Jesus' eternal life. Remember the word association that we played a little earlier? I want to close with this. Here is the most important word association that you will get out of chapter 16. It's in verse 17, and it says, It is done. This phrase is in reference to the judgment that has been completed. In other words, it's been done. Final judgment has come. God's wrath on sin and evil has been completed and now new creation can come. It's a a picture of final judgment that will come one day. That is one thing that has not happened yet. That is something we uh, look at in the future. But I want to contrast that phrase with a phrase that happens at the beginning of chapter 15. Remember, these chapters go together. And there's a phrase at the beginning of chapter 15 that says, it is finished. Those, Those phrases are similar, but they're very different. Finished versus done are two different words. They're two different words not only in the English translation, but also in the Greek translation. You may remember that it is finished is the phrase that Jesus uttered from the cross as he died on the cross. And in this case, both are in reference to the wrath of God, and I think they're deliberate in their phrasing. As we talk about the wrath of God, let me just back up for a moment here. I think one of the major reasons that we see the judgment of God is to display God's character. And a big part of God's character is his holiness. And and his holiness means that he hates what is sin and evil. He despises it and it arouses his wrath or his anger. And the judgment activities are about God removing sin and evil for the reason that God hates it. And it doesn't belong. And his anger burns against it. This is his wrath. He hates what is evil. And personally, i got to say, I love this about God. We just talked about earlier about how 100 million people die during an eight-year span of a war. If a God who created those people just looked at that and said, ah, it is what it is, I don't know that that would be a God that is good, that is worth worshiping. But our God looks at that and his wrath burns against that. Think about things like human trafficking where young girls are kidnapped and drugged and raped over and over again. Some of the most evil stuff you can imagine that happens all over the planet, all the time, every minute of every day. And for a God to look at that and say, ah, you know it happens. People are going to be people. Is not a God that I want to worship, and it's not the God that's shown to us in the Bible. It's a God whose anger is aroused at that. And his wrath comes on evil and sin as a result. I think about the movie Taken. You remember that? If you've seen the movie Taken with Liam Neeson, and he realizes his daughter's been kidnapped, and he says to himself, it's the, I have a particular set of skills. You know that one? Probably the bad. <laughs> but anyway. But at the end he says, I will find you, right? I could play that message on repeat all day long. Because it just, you you get this sense that like, this is righteous anger. It is righteous indignation. A father's wrath is aroused on behalf of of his child. Which brings to the surface the distinction between it is finished and it is done. 
You know, each of these phrases speak about the judgment wrath of God. It is finished speaks to Jesus taking on the wrath of God, which is why he paid the penalty on the cross in our place. It's what is known as this beautiful word propitiation, this beautiful biblical theological word propitiation. That word describes the wrath of God's judgment that Jesus took upon himself out of his love for us on the cross so that we wouldn't have to experience the wrath of God's judgment because Jesus out of his love knew that we would not stand in that. It is finished versus it is done. When you turn the page to Revelation 16, you see a picture of what happens to those who try to stand under God's judgment without the covering and sealing and salvation and propitiation and blood covering of the Lamb. And in all the differences and dichotomies that we see between the two types of people, whether it's sealed by the Lamb, sealed by the beast, the people of heaven or the people of earth, which we see repeatedly in the book of Revelation, There's also another one that's presented to us here. The people who have said it is finished in Jesus versus the people who will hear it is done at the final judgment. One judgment is poured out on Jesus. The other refers to judgment that's poured out on sin and evil in the world. Finished is what Jesus paid for so that we wouldn't need to experience the done part of God's judgment. For each of us, God's judgment is either finished in Jesus' cross or it's yet to be done to us. The good news is that we get to make that decision. We can either accept Jesus' invitation to faith or not, which is extended to any of us to receive, as Jesus says in Revelation 21, without cost, without payment. It is free because he has paid for it for you. I want to point out just one more thing in all of this. You may notice that in three of the bull judgments, there are things that happen to, in, to, to people directly. In, in bulls four, bull five, and bull seven. Things happen to people directly, and there's a response that happens as a result. In each one of those judgments, at least in the first two and four and five, the people blame God, and then it says they, they, they did not repent in each one of those, right? So they have these judgments happen, and then they blame God, and they, say, and they do not repent. And then in bull seven, at the final judgment, even then they are blaming and cursing God when the final judgment falls upon them whether it's a 100-pound hailstones or whatever it may be in that picture. It's a horrible, horrible scene. But think about this for a minute. After all of those judgments hit them, they still don't repent. They still don't turn in faith towards God and worship Him. In fact, they are so prideful and unrepentant that they blame God for their own judgment that's falling on their heads. You know, it doesn't take much of an imagination to see those reactions happening all around us in our world. But God is still patient with us because he's gracious to us. And in the end, Scripture says he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. At the same time here, there's a tension as well. Because in this passage, what we see is Jesus saying, I will come again like a thief. In other words, he will come very suddenly at a time when we cannot predict, and he will come, and when he comes, judgment will come with him, and that judgment will ultimately be final. In fact, we were even told there, keep our garments on so that we're not found to be naked and exposed. It's kind of a modern way of saying that would be don't get caught with your pants down, right? When Jesus comes back, because he will come like a thief and he will come suddenly. He is patient, he is gracious, he is merciful, and he is also just. And he knows that part of the grace and mercy is bringing new creation to this world according to his timing. And it happens on his timing. And for those of us who are 
Jesus' people. This is an encouragement in the moment to be urgent about how we stay faithful. In the face of doubt, in the face of discouragement, in the face of maybe even persecution, that we stay faithful. That we don't be caught exposed, but that we are ready for our Savior to return. And we are ready to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. For those who don't know Jesus, there's a sense of urgency in this to say there is no better time than now to come to him and to say, I'm thirsty and I need living water. I can't fix this on my own. I need to be made new. My sin has separated me from you, but you have made a way back. And I'm gracious for you, or I'm grateful for your grace and your mercy on my behalf. And I know that Jesus' power to save is real. And that is eternal life is a promise and a hope that I'll see one day as a reality. And so, no matter how this strikes you this morning, I want to spend a few minutes as we close in prayer together. And I'm just going to take some time at the beginning to allow you to talk to God. It'll be a time of, of silence where you can just talk to God. What is this speaking to you? How does it move you? And then I'll close this in prayer. Father, we are thankful for your word to us. We know that even places like this where it's difficult and, and difficult to stomach and difficult to understand as we phrased it this morning, Lord, that your, your word is good and faithful and that it's gracious and that it comes from your love. And sometimes love means warning us about the things and telling us the truth about the things that are difficult to hear. So we ask, Lord, that you would soften our hearts to receive what it is that you want to speak to us today. Spirit, would you do your work in each person's heart in this place this morning? And I pray we would be receptive to where you lead us. For those of us who are coming to a place of faith in Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand the depth and the sufficiency of your salvation. That we would be able to say, Yes, Lord Jesus, I know that I need life. I know that I need forgiveness. I know that I am thirsty for the living water that you offer. Lord, I pray you would guide us in faith in that way. For those of us who are struggling, we're moving through life, and there's so many other things that grab our attention. Idolatry is a problem for us, or distraction's a problem for us or fear is a problem for us. Lord, I pray that you would uh, give us an understanding into your goodness in our lives. That your presence would be made real and manifest. And that these promises that we read about are not just things on a paper, but they become the very uh, lifeblood of our, of our soul. They become the direction and the meditations of our hearts and Lord, that your words would be the things that we cling to in moments of doubt and difficulty. That we would find them as true and life-giving and full of hope. And Father, we thank you for your plan of redemption in the end. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for how wonderfully he has seen and shown throughout this entire book. I pray that we would see him today as more glorious, as more beautiful, as more powerful than we did when we first walked in here this morning. And Lord, we have seen a lot this morning. From the baptisms, 
the worship, this wonderful word that you've given us in Revelation 16. Lord, would you apply that to our hearts, even as we respond in worship this morning. Pray that you would be honored and glorified. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Thank you again for being here. Praise God. It was a great day today. Let's celebrate again what God has allowed us to be a part of this morning. So many great things. Reminders of His goodness and grace among us. So many, so it's great to see so many new faces and so many of us together. We don't get to do this often where we're all together. And so I'm thankful to see all of you here. We get to continue the party. Reminder, we have uh, uh, immediately following this service, get over to uh, Desert Horizon called the Police Park. We're going to have a church picnic together just to celebrate all that God's doing among us. Enjoy the beautiful day that he's given us. Play some kickball if you want to and that kind of thing. So join us over there. As you leave here this morning, if you need some prayer, the scenarios are over here to pray with you. There are prayer partners for this service, so you can go to them. They'll be happy to pray with you about whatever's going on. Um, if you want to submit a prayer request, we have prayer request cards located at the table with the cross on it. As you leave here this morning, you can write on those prayer request cards. Put it in the offering stands, those black offering stands as you leave here this morning. And we pray over those things every week. We consider it an opportunity and a privilege to do that with you. Great, again, great to see you guys again. Hope you have a great day. Have a great week. We look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.